There's an old poem about God's perfect providence. It was one of uh, Corey Ten Boom's favorite. I don't know the author. It's kind of anonymous, but Corey Ten Boom uh, quoted it often. It goes something like this. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. I wonder if you are ready to put the thread of your life into the hands of perfect and powerful hands of God. I wonder if you realize that the thread of your life is already in His perfect and powerful hands. And I wonder if that brings you great comfort, knowing that He holds your life in His perfect and powerful hands. This morning, as we study God's words together, We see God draw and tie together the threads of the lives of Isaac and Rebekah in marriage. And as we consider God's work in their lives, I pray that we would be comforted and assured about God's work in our own lives. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles, or turn on your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 24. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 17. The book of Genesis recounts how God is fulfilling His promise to send the Son and Savior who will defeat sin and Satan and death. That's why Genesis is so often concerned with family and offspring. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, the hopes of God's promises focus in on Abraham and his family line. God promised to Abraham lineage and land, a people and a place. And after waiting and waiting and waiting, God finally kept His promise to Abraham. He gave he and Sarah a son named Isaac. As we saw in our last study in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 23, Abraham's wife Sarah has died. And Abraham, as we see in Genesis 24, as the chapter opens, Abraham is old. Now all of the hopes of God's promises rest on Isaac. The problem of Genesis 24, as we're going to see, is that Isaac is single and seedless. He has no wife, And he has no sons. So how is God going to multiply the offspring of Abraham to be as numerous as the stars in the sky? How will this problem be solved with a single and seedless Isaac? Well, through God's perfect provision of a wife in Rebekah. The answer to the problem of Isaac's singleness, though doesn't actually come. The problem isn't actually resolved until the very last verse of the chapter. If you would fast forward to the end of the text, to verse 67. It reads verse 67. Then Isaac brought her, that's Rebekah, into the tent of Sarah his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, as one believer pointed out, the chapter opens with the tent of Sarah empty. And it closes with the tent of Sarah occupied. 
But it takes 67 verses to get there. And Moses, the author of Genesis, is showing us how God is weaving that thread throughout the whole chapter. There's got to be a reason why Moses writes such a long story and shows us these threads. And really, the reason why is because he wants to drive home the point that God's promises come by God's power. The reason that Isaac and Rebekah finally come together in marriage and why Moses repeats parts of the story over and over again in the chapter is because he wants to show that God sovereignly orchestrated their marriage from beginning to end. And the lesson that the people of Israel would have learned as they read this story, they would have pondered God's providence, His perfect providence. And they would have learned that it is God who by His power, by His perfect and sovereign providence, brings these two people together. And that He's in work in their lives. And that all of God's promises to them as the people of Israel, He is perfectly weaving and bringing about in their lives too. And as this story unfolds, you, sitting here today, you should learn that while God providentially acts in your life to carry out His promises, you need to plan to conduct yourself righteously. You need to pray for God to act. You need to praise God when He acts, and you need to proceed in faith when God acts. We see through the characters of this story how we live out our lives, even as God is carrying out His providence in the midst of them. So, beloved, here is the sermon in a sentence. That doesn't mean that after this you can stop listening. you got to listen for how I prove it to you. But here's the sermon in a sentence. While God brings His promises to pass, plan, pray, praise Him, and proceed in faith. Those truths are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Outline which I think you could find the insert there in your bulletin. I trust that will help you follow along. But let's begin with point one. Plan for God to providentially act. Plan for God to providentially act. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 to 9. This is the word of the true and living God. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord Yahweh had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord Yahweh, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord Yahweh, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Well, these verses, they set the trajectory for the rest of the passage. And they set 
Abraham's servant on his way, with an agenda, with a commission. You can see Abraham's commission of a servant to depart and find Isaac a wife there in verse 4. And Abraham is so serious about this commission that he requests that the servant swear an oath and place his hand under his thigh. You can see it in verses 2 and 9. Now, oaths often have signs attached to them in order to solemnize and underscore the seriousness of the commitment being made. So this sign of the servant placing his hand under Abraham's thigh is far more serious than middle schoolers putting their pinkies together and pinky swearing to be besties forever. No, no, no. This is every bit, this oath here and this oath sign is every bit as serious as men and women placing rings on each other's fingers to make the public commitment of their covenant until death parts them. And so by placing his hand under Abraham's thigh, the servant was symbolizing that he was willing to become, to be under Abraham's authority until the task was complete. And the nature and the location of the sign, by placing his hand under Abraham's thigh, also pointed to the goal of the task. The goal of finding Isaac a wife was to secure descendants, offspring, seed, sons for Abraham. Now notice in verse 3 that this servant cannot find Isaac a wife from among the Canaanites. She must be from Abraham's kinsmen. Abraham is emphatic about this. And here, Moses is really repeating in story form a command that God had given to his people Israel in the wilderness. Remember, Moses is writing the book of Genesis to the people of Israel who are journeying into the promised land where the Canaanites actually dwell. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, the Lord said that the people of Israel were not to intermarry with the Canaanites. Remember... Uh, that this is going to be ringing in the ears of the people of Israel as they, they hear this story. Through Genesis 24, they are learning that their father Abraham knew the spiritual dangers of forming such an intimate alliance with those who do not believe in the covenant God. This was a real danger. I mean, just remember Solomon, right? In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, we're told that the foreign wives turned his hearts to other gods. This was a real danger. This is a real danger. The New Testament Scriptures teach that believers in Jesus are only to marry believers in Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, the Apostle Paul teaches us that believers are to marry only in the Lord. So my dear single brothers and sisters, take this to heart. Don't settle for a Canaanite. Don't settle for a Canaanite. Settle for someone and only someone who loves and worships the one true God like you do. Abraham says no to a Canaanite bride for Isaac. But in verses 6 and 7, he also tells the servant, don't let Isaac leave the land of Canaan. That's where Abraham and Isaac are now dwelling. And the reason can be found there in verse 7. Uh, this is the land that God promised to give to Abraham's descendants. And this is where they needed to stay until the Lord called them to leave. What this demand from Abraham shows us is that it's the Lord's promises that tether Abraham and now Isaac to that place. Right? God's promises are governing Abraham's decisions. It's the Lord's promises which lead Abraham to develop this plan to send his servant back to his homeland and find Isaac a wife. But the servant raised a legitimate question, didn't he? You see it there in verse 5? If you look back at verse 5, he says, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. That's a legitimate possibility. I mean, maybe even a probable outcome, right? 
There's all kinds of risks in this plan. How is this servant to convince a young woman to leave her homeland, travel hundreds of miles, and marry a man she has never met? It's going to have to happen by God's power. This is where we're beginning to see that if this comes about, it's going to have to happen by God's power. Notice Abraham's trust in God's providence. His ability to powerfully carry out his plan for his people. Abraham has this kind of prophetic speech there in verses 6 and 7. Abraham's plan depends upon God providentially sending his angel before the servant to orchestrate finding a wife for Isaac. Abraham believes that this is how God will keep his promises. But he actually also leaves open the possibility that it won't work out. Did you notice that? In verse 8, Abraham tells his servant that he may be released from this oath if the woman won't return back with him. So Abraham trusts the Lord, right, to provide by sending the angel ahead of him. But Abraham is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't know how God's going to carry out this plan. And so, he's open the possibility, look, if, if a woman won't come back with you, then what must be the case? Well, the case must be that Abraham is trusting the Lord to provide through some other means. He trusts God in both scenarios. Abraham has followed the Lord long enough to know that the words of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 are true. The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord Yahweh establishes his steps. Beloved, this is true for you. Like Abraham, you should plan for God to providentially act through your plans. He works through ordinary means very often. But in the end, you leave the matter in His hands to sort out the path that most glorifies Him. Plan everything within the bounds of God's righteousness and law, His revealed will, and then leave it to Him. Abraham's plan here was so unlike the plans that he had made in the past. Right In the past, he came up with sinful schemes in order to try to help God fulfill His promises. But so much has changed in Abraham's life, and he's grown to trust the Lord. And that's, he's learned that that's not how it works. You, you don't come up with your own sinful scheme and accept, expect God to bless it. No, God's people are called to plan and act within the bounds of God's revealed will and to trust Him if the plan fails. You can trust Him because His perfect plans never fail. And that's what we see unfold in the next stretch of verses. Let's turn and consider our second point. Pray for God to providentially act. Follow along as I read Genesis 24, verses 10 to 25. Genesis 24, verses 10 to 25. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar of water that I may drink and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, 
came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring of to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, "Please give me a little water to drink from your jar." She said, "Drink, my lord." And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also, until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the water trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew water for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord Yahweh had prospered his journey or not. When the camels came and had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and a room to spend the night. Let's just pause there in our reading. We see here in these verses, the servant prepares to carry out his master's will. He prays when he arrives. He pursues this young woman, and he ponders whether or not God has prospered his way. Underneath it all, of course, we know that God is providentially acting to bring about his promises. Notice in verse 10 how the servant prepares. He took ten of his master's camels and departed. He brought choice goods. These would be needed to convince a worthy young woman that his master was worth marrying. Now notice in verses 12 to 14 that that it is not the prosperity of his master that the servant depends upon. Rather, he depends upon the providence and power of God. That's why he prays. And notice again what he prays there in verse 12. See it? And he said, O Lord Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. And show steadfast love to my master, Abraham. He he prays for success. He prays for God to act on the basis of his steadfast love to Abraham. This is actually going to be a phrase that comes up again and again in our text. Steadfast love to Abraham. It is central to actually what's unfolding in the chapter. What's been unfolding in the book of Genesis. In this phrase, the servant is pleading the promises of the covenant that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And he renewed that covenant in Genesis 15. Uh, and renewed, those promises were renewed, I should say, by covenant in Genesis 15. And of which God reassured Abraham there in Genesis 17. Notice too that he prays specifically and precisely. He wants specific events to unfold and specific words to come out of a young woman's mouth. And he tells God why he wants such a specific and precise answer to his prayer there at the end of verse 14. He wants to be sure that this is God's will and that this is the one for Isaac. And he especially wants to know that God is indeed showing steadfast love, that is, covenant love to his master. I wonder, have you ever prayed for something specifically, something precisely like this? I have, and to this day, I am astonished that God answered. Um, On July the 5th, 2009, I and about 24 other brothers and sisters in the Lord planted a local church here in Arlington. 
It was then known as Grace Baptist Church of Arlington. And in September of that year, in 2009, we settled into a building about five blocks that way, uh, known as the Women's Club of Arlington. That's where our church plant was meeting every Lord's Day for five years. And every week on Sunday morning, I would drive down Columbia Pike. I'd go to the post office off of Lee Road. I'd pick up the mail for that little church plant, for our little church plant. And then I would drive through this neighborhood, intentionally passing by this building and praying that the Lord would give us this building. Every week for five years, that's what I did. And this is not legend or myth. This is true. You can ask my kids who rode with me in the car. Uh, you can ask my wife. You can ask uh, Derek and Alyssa Morgan. You can ask Michael and Stacia Griffin. Uh, you can ask William and Diamond Smith, Chris and Carlin Alberts, and a handful of others that uh, I'm forgetting to name, uh, who are even here this morning. I prayed specifically that the Lord would give us this building. And five years to the Sunday, on the start of that church plant, on July the 6th, 2015, the members of Grace Baptist Church of Arlington united in membership with the saints here at Arlington Baptist Church. And we began worshiping in this building. And I share this story not because I'm some great prayer warrior. Sadly, I'm not. Um, on Friday morning, my office, I was weeping, thinking about how prayerless I've been in my life when we have such a powerful God. But I share that story with you, and I retell it to remind myself to pray, and to urge you to pray, because, beloved, God is pleased to answer prayer, even specific prayer. Do you know how much we paid for this church building? Zero. We asked God to give it to us, and that's exactly what He did, in His kindness and love and generosity. And then somebody gave us wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ to worship with here, too. God answers our prayers often far better than we have even thought to ask. He delights to show His power in answering our prayers. He loves to assure us that He can be trusted by answering our prayers. So, beloved, pray. Pray like this servant. Pray specifically. Pray big and glorious prayers that will honor God and show that only He's the one who can answer such prayers. Now, notice what the Lord, what the Lord does. Do you see how he begins uh, verse 15? Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, and catch this, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Why do you think the Lord answered his prayer so quickly? It's not because he's a man and men are generally impatient and so he needed an answer right away. No, that's somewhat true, but no, that's, that's not the reason why he did this. It's because the Lord wanted to show his power that he was already at work and that he had gone before, just like Abraham said that he would. He was at work. He was already answering the servant's prayer before the words were finished coming off of his lips. We see the servant pursue Rebecca for water there in verses 16 to 20. In verse 17, we're told that he ran to meet her. And by the gracious providence of the Lord, she fulfills all of the requirements of the servant's prayer. And at this point, many commentators love to point out that giving this servant and his camels to some water to drink would have been quite a task. I mean, they estimate that Rebecca had provided between 25 and 30 gallons of water for each camel, 10 of them. Now, I don't think the quantity of water is the point that Moses is making. I think that the point of the text is that Rebecca is proving herself to be the right wife for Isaac. She's hospitable and helpful. She is just the kind of woman that Isaac needs. She had no knowledge of the potential offer of marriage. Rather, she simply served. 
And she teaches us an important lesson in that way. Go about serving God and serving your neighbor. Be the kind of man or woman who is generous and gracious, helpful and hospitable, and trust God to arrange your future. One of the funniest things of, about our text is what, what we find in verses 21 to 28. Do you see how the servant ponders what's unfolding before his eyes? You see that in verse 21? The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord Yahweh had prospered his journey or not. I mean, come on, man. This is the exact thing you prayed for. What's there left to ponder? This is the one. She's the one. And he clearly comes to that conclusion as he blesses Rebecca with these, these rich gifts. She was generous to him and he was generous in return. Those two bracelets weighing 10 shekels, they matched the number of camels that she watered, 10. Uh, the gold ring was actually for her nose, which in those days was an especially valuable accessory that accentuated a woman's beauty. Now through further conversation between Rebecca and Abraham's servant, he learns that not only was she willing to show him hospitality and, and for his camels at the well, but she was willing to offer her family's home too. What kind of response ought this to provoke? It ought to provoke a response of praise. When God answers your prayers, you ought to thank and praise Him. This is precisely what the servant does. That's our third point. Praise God when He providentially acts. Follow along now as I read just verses 26 to 28 for now. And if you're wondering, is he really going to read the whole chapter? Let me just give you the answer that uh, another pastor said to this very question. I can think of worse things that were done in church. Um, but no, I'm going to summarize parts of it. I'm not actually going to read the whole chapter. But I am going to read verses 26 to 28 right now. Here we go. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord Yahweh and said, Blessed be the Lord Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord Yahweh has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman, then the young woman ran and told her mother's house, household about these things. Now notice what the servant praises God for. He praises God for not forsaking his steadfast love and faithfulness toward Abraham. Right? In other words, he, in the events that he's seen that, that have unfolded, the servant sees that God is in the midst of keeping his covenant promises to Abraham. Uh, this woman is going to be part of God's plan to multiply Abraham's offspring. God is going to make sure that Abraham's son Isaac is going to have offspring. And thus keeping the hope of the promise of the Messiah alive. Okay, so the servant is convinced. That, that's, that's great. But what about Rebecca? What, what about Rebecca's family? And what about Rebecca herself? They have to be convinced to come to praise God for His providence too. That's really what verses 29 to 51 chronicle. So let's just take them in bite-sized chunks. Read verses 29 to 32 now. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord Yahweh. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Remember, the promises of God 
still have to get over two camel humps, so to speak, right? So that Isaac and Rebekah can ride off into the sunset. The first camel hump is really Rebekah's family, right? They, they have to be convinced that Isaac is worth marrying. And did you notice what made Laban run? What caught his attention? It was the gold. Now, we're going to learn a little later in the book of Genesis that Laban is very interested in material wealth, and he'll scheme to get wealthy. But just notice how Laban is drawn in. Gold gleams in his eyes. And so he invites Abraham's servant in. Remember that Laban is Rebekah's brother. Bethuel is Rebekah's father. It appears that Laban is going to be the one who negotiates on behalf of his father. Even so, let me just say a word to fathers here this morning. Material wealth is not a good reason to give your daughter away to a young man. It would be better that your daughter's suitor is poor in spirit than wealthy in the world. Above all, see to it that the young man who pursues your daughter possesses the treasure of the kingdom of heaven in his heart. The servant, as we'll see in verses 33 to 49, is not content to let Abraham's prosperity convince Laban that Isaac is a favorable suitor. No, he wants the Lord's providence to convince Laban that Isaac and Rebekah are a match made in heaven. He wants Laban to join in praising God for providentially acting in bringing them together. And he's anxious to tell the story. You'll notice in verse 33 that he won't even eat until he's got a chance to speak. And in the beginning of verse 34, he retells the story from the very beginning. But he tells the story with a particular design. He underscores the Lord's action along the way. Now, we're not going to read the whole speech. I just want to show you the parts of it where the servant is underscoring God's providence. He's trying to prove that God has acted. So look down at verse 40. See that there? He says, But he said to me, The Lord Yahweh, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son and my clan from my father's house. So here's the servant. He's recounting Abraham's prophecy about the Lord Yahweh going before him and providing for him a wife from his father's house. The point of bringing out this detail is to show Laban that this was pre-planned by God. Now, in verses 42 to 44, he recounts his prayer. He tells them of the specificity of his requests. And the goal is to communicate that only God knew this prayer. Rebekah had no knowledge of this man's prayer. Only God knew his prayer, and only God could answer it. And of course, he is persuaded that God did answer it. So he recounts what happened step by step from verses 45 to 47. Now take a look at verse 48. Read verse 48. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord Yahweh and blessed the Lord Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now do you see how many times he mentions the Lord? Do you see how he talks about the Lord's leading and guiding? He has no other explanation for how God has so perfectly and providentially led him to Rebekah. He praises God for this perfect providence. And then he puts the question to them. The servant basically pleads with Laban and Bethuel to praise God too. Read verse 49 now. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Now notice 
Notice how he uses that phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness. It's almost as if he's saying, from all that I can tell, it is God's will that Isaac and Rebekah should be joined together because God has orchestrated this union. From all that I can tell, this is how God is planning to keep His steadfast love and faithfulness to Abraham. From all that I can tell, this is how God is planning to carry on His covenant promises. So, do you agree that God is at work here in bringing Isaac and Rebekah together? Tell me if you're going to join me in praising God for what He has done. If not, I'll be on my way. Now look at Laban and Bethuel's reply there in verses 50 and 51. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord Yahweh. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord Yahweh has spoken. Now notice how they submit to the word of the Lord, as we all should. And notice what this reply prompts from Abraham's servant there in verse 52. Do you see it? Verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. What he's doing? He's praising God. Abraham's servant praises God for what he has done in bringing Isaac and Rebekah together. Beloved, let us recognize that it is God who sovereignly arranges every marriage. If you are married, God arranged that marriage. Married people, recognize that it was the Lord who led you to one another. And praise God for that. Married people, though, are not the only people who should praise God for what He has done and what He is doing. Everyone should. Do you praise God for what He has done what He's doing in your life? Let me encourage you from time to time to stop and ponder God's providence in your life. Stop and reflect upon how God has so perfectly preserved you. How He has so perfectly provided for you. And how He has so perfectly loved you in Jesus Christ. Our lives ought to be filled with more praise of God's perfect providence toward us. You might be thinking to yourself, but I haven't known the joy of marriage. Or I've... I've had a life actually filled with suffering and sorrow. Dear friend, be assured that whatever course your life has taken, God has purposed and planned each step. You may not be able to see it as clearly as Abraham's servant, but it is true. Whatever God has handed you has come from a heart of love for you. Whatever God has handed you has come from a heart of love for you. Whatever God has purposed and planned for you was necessary and is necessary to prepare you for glory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says this, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God's providence... God's powerful working to carry out His plan is God's preparation for God's people to praise Him. You will praise Him on the last day. And you should praise Him on this day. A few moments ago I mentioned that the promises of God still have to get over two camel humps. The first camel hump was Rebecca's family. They had to be convinced that this marriage was from the Lord and that Isaac was worth marrying. The second camel hump, so to speak, was convincing Rebecca that this marriage was from the Lord and that Isaac was worth marrying. 
And as we read the verses that close the chapter, observe how Rebecca proceeds in faith, trusting that God is providentially acting. This is our final point. Proceed in faith when God providentially acts. Follow along now as I read Genesis 24, verses 52 to 62, just for now. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord Yahweh has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Let's just pause there for now. In verses 53 and 54, we see that uh, just as Abraham's servant richly blessed Rebekah at the well, so he richly blessed her again and blessed Laban and Bethuel and the family in the home. Uh, they eat and they drink and celebrate. But when morning comes, Abraham's servant wants to get on the road. He has sworn an oath to his master and he faithfully wants to see it carried to completion. Now this is when we are confronted with really the second hurdle, or camel hump, so to speak. Uh, will Rebecca be willing to follow this servant back to Canaan? Remember, that was the very question that the servant put to Abraham. Back in verse 5, if you move back up to verse 5, you'll remember he said, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. So there's still tension in the narrative. Is this going to happen? Now comes the moment of truth. What will Rebecca decide? Laban and Rebecca's... Uh, they, they try to delay, but Rebecca makes absolutely no delay. In verse 58, without hesitation, she says, I will go. Now, in the original language, in the Hebrew, there may be even kind of an expression of desire in the response. So, in other words, Rebecca's reply may also be translated, I want to go. Or here's my translation, let's ride. Rebecca teaches us, right, that if, if the Lord has made His will clear... That we should want His will and carry out His will. We should proceed in faith. Here, Rebecca is simply imitating the faith of Father Abraham, who years earlier had been called by God to go from this very land. To go to the promised land. God called Abraham to go from his homeland, not knowing what future lay before him, and to be used of God to fulfill His covenant purposes. Now God is making His call clear to Rebecca, And like Abraham... She proceeds in faith. Notice the family's blessing as she departs there in verse 60. Rebecca's family echo the covenant promises of God. Right? To have offspring as numerous as the star in the sky. But especially the promises of Genesis chapter 17 verse 16 and Genesis chapter 22 verse 17. 
we're reminded that one day, the offspring of Abraham will possess the gate of his enemies. Beloved, this is nothing less than the hope of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. Those words, that he would possess the gate of his enemies, are nothing less than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Has not Jesus, by his sinless life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and saving resurrection from the grave, conquered the enemies of sin, Satan, and death? What did our Savior say? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, didn't Jesus say that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church? Why not? The offspring that God promised would crush Satan in Genesis 3.15 and who would possess the gate of His enemies has come in Jesus Christ. And Rebekah was part of that line who brought the Messiah. So friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I urge you to proceed in faith to the cross and the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus. Go and see where He defeated your sin and He defeated Satan. Go to the cross and the empty tomb believing that Jesus defeated death, the devil, and hell for you. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ today that He has conquered the gate of your enemy and that Christ will come again and take you to Himself. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart, but hearken unto Jesus and like Rebecca say, I will go to Him. I will go to Him. Go to Christ and be saved. Go to Christ and be united to your husband and the head of the church. Unite yourself to Him in faith. In Christ and in Christ alone is found blessing and salvation and glory. And friend, if you want to know more about what it means to be saved by Jesus, loved eternally by Him, and to escape from the eternal punishment that's due to your sin, how you might come to trust Him, follow Him, and serve Him, find me at the door after the service. Find an elder of this congregation. Find the Christian friend or family member that you came here with this morning and ask them about this good news, about how Jesus has broken the power of hell. How He's broken the gate of the enemies. He possesses it and reigns and rules over it in saving victory through His life and death and resurrection. Christ has so loved His people and laid down His life for them and been lifted up from the grave so that they might know eternal blessing and union with Him. Give yourself up to Jesus today and His love. Well, let's look at how this story of love in Genesis 24 ends. Read verses 62 to 67 now. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Here we continue to see God providentially bringing Isaac and Rebekah together. Isaac just so happened to be out in the field meditating. That was no coincidence, but a divinely orchestrated meeting and marriage. 
Don't you love the repeated language? And he lifted up his eyes. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes. Yeah, that was just a coincidence too. Here is the commitment to love at first sight. Notice that Rebecca veils herself. This was normally what women did in the days leading up to their marriage ceremony. Rebecca's showing Isaac that she's committed to marrying him. But what about Isaac? In verse 66, the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. We have little doubt that he told Isaac the story of God's providence, like he told it to Rebecca's family. He almost certainly underscored God's divine design and activity each step along the way. And then in verse 67, the story reaches the goal it had from the beginning. The union of Isaac and Rebekah. The filling of the tent of Sarah in preparation for carrying on the promises and the plan of God. And as we conclude, I want you to consider your story in light of this story in Genesis 24. And really, the entire story of the Bible. Orchestrating this marriage between Isaac and and Rebecca is a small window, in a small window of time, was ultimately one thread in the larger tapestry of orchestrating the marriage between Christ and the church. That's what we read from Ephesians 5 earlier in the service. In that passage, Paul noted that even the marriage in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve pointed forward to the future reality of marriage between Christ and the church. And think about the structure of the Bible, right? The Bible opens with a marriage there in Genesis 2, and it closes with a marriage between Christ and His church there in Revelation 20 and 21. In a similar way, God wrote this story of Isaac and Rebekah so that we could better understand and appreciate the larger story of Christ and the church. And that story encompasses our story, each of our stories. For we are His church, His body, and His bride. And just as God providentially pulled together the threads of Isaac and Rebekah's lives, powerfully and perfectly weaving them to, in, into His tapestry of grace, so He is at work in the thread of your life. Sometimes there is pain in the pulling of that thread. Sometimes there is friction as the thread of your life rubs up against sin and suffering and other sojourners who perhaps sin against you and suffer alongside you. But you can be certain of this. The Lord God is keeping His steadfast love to you. He's made covenant promises to you in Jesus Christ. And He is going to bring you all the way home. He is providentially acting in your life. Just like He was acting in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah. And though today you can only see the underside of that tapestry that He is weaving. One day you will see it all. His faithfulness to you will not fail. His powerful and perfect providence will bring His promises to pass. Remember the words of that poem that I read at the beginning. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern He has planned. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. On that day you shall praise Him with unending delight. For then you shall behold your bridegroom, the Lamb who is the light. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your perfect providence. Father, we confess that sometimes it's heavy and hard 
But we know that you are shaping us and preparing us for glory. It's needed. So help us to believe that truth. Help us to believe that you are guiding us and being faithful to your promises and faithful to us. Father, we pray and ask for faith like Rebecca. Faith that says, I will go. Father, help each one of us now in our hearts to run to our beloved bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, friends, brothers and sisters, go ahead and find the hymnal provided for you there and turn to number 54, Great is Thy Faithfulness. In this song, we're going to sing of God's faithfulness, which is really uh, what we've been thinking about all through Genesis 24. Right? The servant was pointing out over and over and over again that God was being faithful to his steadfast love to Abraham, keeping his promises. And here we remind ourselves that God is being faithful to us. So let's sing of God's perfect providence to us, even as we sing about how he guides us. Let's sing, Great is thy faithfulness. Please stand as we sing. <laughs> 